0: Well, it's good to be among friends, and uh, I got to tell you, maybe you remember in your college days, waking up in the middle of the night, being afraid that you forgot to go to class all semester, and uh, pastors don't have that nightmare. Pastors have the nightmare where they go to preach in a new place, and they forgot to prepare a sermon. So I was grateful at 5 a.m. this morning, I woke up and I realized, no, you, you did prepare. You have a sermon to preach. So... Uh, wow, the, the songs that we sang this morning, I don't know if that was planned. I have no idea because I, I feel like I just told you yesterday what I was preaching on, but the songs were exactly... The, the, the prayer this morning, I feel like Matt preached my sermon in his prayer. Uh, the songs were so wonderful. I mean, I don't want to trip, but let me see over here. Uh, when through the deep waters I call you to go the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow for I will be with you your troubles to bless and sanctify to you your deepest distress. Uh, that, that's just perfect. Thank you so much, Neil, for leading us in that. And um, I do want to just give a little bit of a, a background. I know we don't have a lot of time. I actually don't know when I'm supposed to end, so I guess that's a good thing. Um, <laughs> three. I love it. Uh, so I bring greetings from Grace Bible Church in Hebrew City, Utah, and some of you know me, I won't point you out because after the sermon you may not want to admit that. but uh, I do uh, want to share with you that we came out to Utah in 2013, my wife and I and our five children, Lily, Ella, Titus, Mercy, and Paul and We planted this church under the umbrella of Grace Advance. That's a church planning ministry that is associated with John MacArthur. Uh, I attended seminary with your pastor and also with Brian Chassard. And um, in fact, I I was thinking about it, and I do recall, in fact, my wife probably remembers this as well, that we attended a prayer send-off sort of commissioning service at the Master's College way back in 2008 for this church, before it existed. And uh, I remember that night very clearly. And your pastor has gone out of his way to show me personal kindness on several occasions, and I've been so grateful for that friendship. And we are also grateful for a former member of this body, Brian Chassard. And Brian came on staff at our church Uh, in September of last year, and he and his family have been an incredible blessing. And I asked Eric if um, I might preach an expositional sermon this morning, and I gave him a text and a topic, and, and he very graciously said, well, I'd rather you preach a sermon on suffering, especially in light of what your family has gone through in the last year. And so I will do that. But before I do, let's go to prayer. Father, I do come to you now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. We are weak. We are ignorant. We are fragile. In short, we are human. And never have I had to personally face the human struggle to trust you more than I have in this past year. But you are a great Savior. In fact, I love what we read in Psalm 13, that we trust in your loving kindness. So I ask that the words of my mouth bring your your faithfulness into sharper focus for the people that are here from Cornerstone Church this morning, especially for those who are hurting. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. A pastor had been on a long flight between church conferences. The first warning of the approaching problems came when the sign on the airplane flashed on, fasten your seatbelts. Then after a while, a calm voice said, we will not be serving the beverages at this time as we are expecting a little turbulence. Please be sure your seatbelt is fastened. As the pastor looked around the aircraft, it became obvious that many of the passengers were becoming apprehensive. Later, the voice on the intercom said, we are so sorry that we are unable to serve the meal at this time. The turbulence is still ahead of us. And then the storm broke. The ominous cracks of thunder could be heard even above the roar of the engines. Lightning lit up the darkening skies. And within moments, the great plane was like a cork tossed around on a celestial ocean. One moment, the airplane was lifted on terrific currents of air. The next, it dropped as if it were about to crash. As the pastor looked around the plane, he could see that nearly all the passengers were upset and alarmed. Some were praying. The future seemed ominous, and many, including the pastor, were wondering if they would make it through the storm. Then suddenly, he saw a little girl. Apparently, the storm meant nothing to her. She had tucked her feet beneath her as she sat on her seat. She was reading a book, and everything within her small world was calm and orderly. Sometimes she closed her eyes, then she would read again, then she would straighten her legs. But worry and fear were not in her world. When the plane was being buffeted by the terrible storm, when it lurched this way and that, as it rose and fell with frightened severity, when all the adults were scared half to death, That marvelous child was completely composed and unafraid. The minister could hardly believe his eyes. When the plane finally reached its destination and the passengers were hurrying to disembark, the pastor lingered to speak to the girl whom he had watched for such a long time. Having commented about the storm and the behavior of the plane, he asked why she had not been afraid. The child replied, because my daddy is the pilot. My daddy is the pilot. Five small words, but powerful and profound enough to enable us to endure any trial or test in this life with the same serenity that characterized that little girl. Who is piloting your life? Is it you? Is it random chance? Is it Satan? Is life a chessboard and you and God are on one side and Satan and random chaos is on the other? Are you agonizing over questions like, why is my husband unfaithful? Why is my wife so critical? Why is my teen so ungrateful? Why is my health so poor all the time? Why do I struggle with lust so much? Why am I so lonely? Why can't I achieve financial stability? Why did my child have to die? We can't possibly know the answer to any of those questions, but we certainly know that God is in control and that He ordained all of these circumstances. When our son Titus died last year, completely unexpectedly, a week after his 16th birthday, we were left with an endless number of questions and no answers. Our lives were shattered. Our mental capacities seemed to be paralyzed. We found that getting out of bed was a monumental achievement. We knew that the world was continuing as normal, but we felt completely disconnected from the world around us. This was uncharted territory. Around that time, exactly a year ago, your pastor asked me to share at your pastor's conference when the wounds were very raw, only a month after we had lost our son. And at the time, I was still in a state of shock. And now, a year later, I am still somewhat inclined, like the psalmist, to be speechless and to not open my mouth for what the Lord has done. But I also recognize that God has given us a unique platform because He has appointed us to this suffering. So I speak to you this morning from a distant land. God has put our family on a strange journey, and we have come to tell you about what we have seen. Not everything that I say this morning is going to be easy. In fact, you may have to brace yourself at some points during this message but i do have a specific goal in mind i am trying to help those who have experienced extreme suffering and i understand that that may not be everyone in this room yet first i want to say that death reveals the morbidity and the fragility of life psalm 39:5 says behold You have made my days as handbreadths and my lifetime as nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. David is comparing life to the space between your thumb and your pinky. Mere inches in God's sight. He says that a human life can be summed up in an inhale And an exhale, a vapor. But with that, the death of a loved one brings about an agony that can tempt us, especially in the night watches, to question the character of God. How can this be loving? How can God be just? This is not just. This is a perversion of justice. We can be tempted to believe lies, lies like there is no hope, God cannot redeem this, there is no reason to go on living. Today, my goal is to feed your soul. That's my hope, that's my prayer. The principles I will share with you are transcendent, and in that sense, they will benefit you not just today, but for years to come. I think we know that the most critical component of the Christian life is trusting God. Hard times are to be expected in life. And I know that many times people say, trust God in the trying times. But your response might be, well, that's easier said than done. It's a little like going to the mechanic and saying, How do I fix my car? And him responding, Well, fix your car. That's not helpful if you don't know how to fix your car. We know we need to trust God, but many of us don't know how. How do we trust God in the most difficult times? And my gift to you this day will be the secret to trusting God. The gift will come in the form of three principles, just three principles this morning that we must understand if we are going to trust God. The first principle, God's ways are higher than our ways. God's ways are higher than our ways. Isaiah 55, 8, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. Whereas the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Our son Titus was healthy, he was active, he was outgoing, he was gifted, he was athletic, he was handsome, he was smart, and he was loved by all. Six hundred people came to his memorial service last April. Pastor Eric and Pastor Matt were among them, and half of those were unbelievers that came from the community Believe me when I say my wife and I have racked our brains to try to understand how and why this might have happened. From a human perspective, his death didn't make any sense. And here lies the creator-creature distinction. We need to let God be God. I came across this illustration in a book by J.I. Packer called Knowing God, and I call it the control box illustration. If you stand at the end of a platform on York Station, you can watch a constant succession of engine and train movements, which, if you are a railway enthusiast, will greatly fascinate you. But you will only be able to form a very rough and general idea of the overall plan in terms of which all these movements are being determined. If, however, you are privileged enough to be taken by one of the high-ups into the magnificent electrical signal box that lies athwart Platform 7 and 8, you will see on the longest wall a diagram of the entire track layout for five miles on either side of the station, with little glow-worm lights moving or stationary on the different tracks to show the signal men at a glance exactly where every engine and train is at once you will be able to look at the whole situation through the eyes of the men who control it. You will see from the diagram why it was that this train had to be signaled to a halt and that one diverted from its normal running line and that one parked temporarily in a siding. The why and the wherefore of all these movements becomes plain once you can see the overall position. What is Packer saying? Well, many Christians confuse wisdom with being in the control box at York Station. It is something like a perch from which we can view the meaning and purpose of events going on around us. In other words, it is believed that wise people are able to discern the real purpose of everything that happens to them, that it should be clear to them how God was making all things work together for good. But see, this is a futile inquiry. Key point, the gift of wisdom presupposes our conscious inability to discern God's secret purposes. The gift of wisdom presupposes our conscious inability to discern God's secret purposes. I used to think, I don't know about the book of Ecclesiastes. Maybe maybe you've read the book of Ecclesiastes, right? And I sometimes wondered, is this really inspired? I mean, Solomon had like a thousand wives. I'm not sure. But now, after my son's death, I see the wisdom of the book of Ecclesiastes. The preacher intends to show us that the real basis of wisdom is a frank acknowledgement That the course of this world is inscrutable to mortals. He proclaims that most of what happens in our lives is inexplicable to us, and that most occurrences under the sun bear no outward sign of a rational divine strategy. In fact, the book as a whole warns us against the quest for evidence of design in our suffering. He says, look at the world around you. Take off your rose-colored glasses. What do you see? He talks about aimless recurring cycles in nature. He talks about the sunrise and the sunset. He talks about the wind coming and going. He talks about rivers flowing into the ocean and the hydrologic cycle. He talks about generations that come and go. He talks about the seasons he talks about our lives being governed by circumstances over which we have no control. He says that death comes to everyone sooner or later, but it comes haphazardly. He says we all die like beasts, good ones like bad and wise ones like fools. He says that evil runs rampant. He says the wicked prosper and the good do not. Allow me just to read a few selections from the book of Ecclesiastes, just to give you an idea of what he's saying. He says in chapter two, the wise man and the fool die alike. In chapter three, he says, Furthermore, I have seen in the Son that in the place of justice there is wickedness, and in the place of righteousness there is wickedness. For the fate of the sons of men and the fate of the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they have all the same breath, and there is no advantage for man over beast, for all is vanity. In chapter 7, he says, There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. In chapter 8, verse 11, he says, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. And then in chapter 9, verse 11, I again saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, and the battle is not to the warriors, and neither is bread to the wise, nor wealth to the to the discerning, nor favor to men of ability, for time and chance overtake them all. Moreover, man does not know his time like fish caught in a treacherous net and birds trapped in a snare, so the sons of men are ensnared at an evil time when it suddenly falls on them. The harder you try to understand the events around you the more imperceptible divine purpose and order becomes. It's it's sort of like chasing after the end of a rainbow. And as a result, we are tempted to conclude that life really is as pointless as it looks. What point is there in all our labor and toil? Is it not, as the preacher says, vanity and striving after the wind? But toward the end of the book, Solomon makes a statement that has counseled my heart greatly. Ecclesiastes 11:5 says, "Just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of a pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things." It's true many of the events in our lives appear to have no rational power behind them. But this does not mean that God is not working. It simply means that we cannot discern the ways of God. We know this. We know this because everyone in this room has gone through tragedy. And when we were going through that tragedy, what did we do? God, take this away. God, I don't want this. No, God, no. But if we are honest, everyone in this room has seen good rise from the ashes of that tragedy. This is because we just don't have the ability to discern the ways of God. The main purpose in God saving us is to what? To conform us to the image of His Son. And suffering is an important tool in God's toolbox to bring about that transformation. We even sang about that this morning. It may humble us, it may make us more merciful. It may make us more tender-hearted. It might even make us more approachable. One writer said this, A series of losses are like trees thudding to the ground never to stand tall again. The steady felling is providing new ability to hear with clarity and compassion and mitigating the me statements that leave others feeling devalued. All things are working together for good, including this, the one thing you'd return to sender if you could. Proverbs 3, 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. Notice that God doesn't command us to figure out our circumstances. Can you imagine if God commanded Job to figure out his circumstances? oftentimes we will not be able to do so. We will have many situations in life that we will not be able to make heads or tails of. We need to come to a place where we can trust God more than we can trust our own judgment. We need to come to a place where we trust God more than we trust our own judgment. So that's the first principle. God's ways Are higher than our ways. Second principle is similar. God's ways are hidden from us. God's ways are hidden from us. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong unto the Lord our God. There are going to be times in our lives when we can't possibly see how things will turn out for good. And it is precisely at those times that we must walk by faith, not by sight. And this is no surprise. This is the way God has designed the Christian life. Hebrews eleven six. But without faith it is impossible to please God. For he that comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. You remember the story of Abraham. Abraham had to trust God when God called him to sacrifice his son Isaac. Joseph had to trust God when his brothers sold him into slavery in Egypt. Job had to trust God when God delivered him over to unimaginable suffering. After Job launches into a complaint about God's injustice to him, he said, listen, you took the lives of all ten of my children. You took all my wealth, and ultimately you confiscated my health. And he says, why God? What have I done to deserve any of this? And God responds with a series of sarcastic questions in Job 38. And notice, not once does God address Job's complaint. He says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Have you commanded the morning and caused the dayspring to know its place? Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked the recesses of the deep? Have you perceived the expanse of the earth? Can you bind the chains of Pleiades or loose the bands of Orion? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? And what was Job's response? It was to shut his mouth in Job 40 and to repent in dust and ashes for questioning God without knowledge. We simply must acknowledge that God knows things that we don't know. Key point, due to our limited perspective, we are not in a position to make a final evaluation about our present circumstances. Due to our limited perspective, we are not in a position to make a final evaluation about our present circumstances. Remember what Jesus told the disciples when they desperately sought answers. He said, it is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has fixed by His own authority. We're told in Ephesians 1.11 that God works all things according to the counsel of His will. That's true, but that doesn't mean that He is obligated to keep us in the loop. When He does, it's wonderful. The Bible is a great example of God letting us into His confidence. It's a great privilege when God lets us in on His purposes. But it's not something that we can expect. God is always doing more in your life than you can see from your limited perspective. God is always doing more in your life than you can see from your limited perspective. So the first two principles are God's ways are higher than our ways. And God's ways are hidden from us. Principle number three God's ways are holy. God's ways are holy. Psalm 145, 17, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. Abraham puts it in the form of a rhetorical question. He says the same thing. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Genesis 18, 25. I find this principle the most encouraging principle of all. It doesn't matter what your issue is. If you understand God's character, you have nothing to fear. God is always good, so our lives cannot be shaken. When we say that God is holy, the word means pure, set apart. There is no corruption in God. It's not possible for God to lie to us, It's not possible for God to mistreat us. His motives and actions are always pure. His ways never change. When we can't see God's hand, we can always trust His character. And we don't ever want to look at God through the lens of our problems. We look at our problems in light of who God is. Key point, we must view suffering in light of who God is. So who is God? What does the Bible say about His character? I'm going to give you three sub-points. A, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. The Bible tells us that God is sovereign over all things, including our suffering. One of the first verses that came to mind the day my son died was Deuteronomy 32, 39. God says, see now that I am he, and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal, and there is no one who can deliver from my hand. Ecclesiastes 7.13, consider the work of God, for who is able to straighten what he has bent? In the day of prosperity, be happy, but in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one. As well as the other. Everything that happens in our lives, church, has been specifically planned out by God from the beginning. And I mean everything. Isaiah 45 6 says, I am the Lord, and there is no other, the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. So God is sovereign. But He's also loving. That's the second sub-point. God is loving. And we sang about that. And we read about that in Psalm 13. Sovereignty is only one facet of God's character. He's also loving and compassionate. Psalm 34, 17, "...the righteous cry, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles." The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. God cares about our suffering. He even keeps a record of all our pain. Psalm 56 verse 8, You have taken account of my wanderings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? So the second sub-point under... God is holy is God is loving in addition to God is sovereign. The 3rd subpoint is that God is also wise. He's all wise. God is also wise beyond comparison. Isaiah 40 verse 28, his understanding is inscrutable. Psalm 147.5 His understanding is infinite. He knows everything there is to know. Uh, uh, Some of you have read Jerry Bridge's book Trusting God and in that book he talks about the three table legs of trusting God. God is all powerful, God is all loving, and God is all wise. Romans 11.33 Oh the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments, and unfathomable his ways, for who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become His counselor? So if God is all-powerful, all-loving and all-wise, what do we have to fear? Psalm 27:1 "The Lord is my light and my salvation. whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? These are rhetorical questions intended to teach. We have nothing to fear in any of our circumstances, and we must take God at His word. Romans 8.31, if God be for us, who can be against us? Now, I know it's tempting to try to solve the mystery of our baffling circumstances, but it's like having a thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle, and all we've got is one piece. We don't even have the picture on the front of the box. We can't make sense of our problems because we don't have the necessary context. So we must evaluate our problems in light of His Word and trust that He is working in our lives in a way that is consistent with His holy character. Life is like the backside of a tapestry. We see only the tangled knots, the dangling string, and the arbitrary splotches of color here and there. And we may not see the masterpiece God is weaving together this side of glory. We don't have the capacity as mortals to accurately evaluate our situation based on what we see and feel in the present time. So once again, the key to trusting God is to begin by distrusting our own judgment. Proverbs 3, 5, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct thy paths. Our daddy is the pilot. And because we are his children, he sovereignly guides us in the path of his will. That's a promise. Romans 8, 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. God's ways are higher than our ways. God's ways are hidden from us. In God's ways are holy. And and what I've shared with you today is fresh. It's it's new. It's I mean, when Eric asked me to do that, I didn't have this sermon prepared, and uh, this is the first time I've ever preached this sermon. And it's what I learned to be the key to trusting God and remaining faithful in our attitude toward Him, while in the midst. Of tragic circumstances, but we need to remember this is all about God. It's not about us. Elizabeth Elliot said, "The Bible does not explain everything necessary for our intellectual satisfaction, but it explains everything necessary for our obedience, and hence for God's satisfaction." If you can keep these three principles front and center. It will help you to trust God. God's ways are higher than our ways. God's ways are hidden from us, and God's ways are holy. And if you can trust God, you will be able to weather the storms of this life, and you will be able to faithfully bring glory to His name. You can be like the faithful saints in the Bible. Think about them. The ones that come to your mind right now. They didn't start out perfect and wise. They got there over time. Remember when we first meet Abraham in Genesis 12? It's not until Genesis 22 that, that he finally begins to trust God completely. Joseph Think about him in Genesis 50. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. It takes a while to get there. You don't start there. What about Job? In in Job chapter 42, you remember that Job is constantly complaining to God, right? About his situation. But in Job 42, I love what he says. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do all things and that no purpose of thine can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Let's close in prayer. Father, there is no greater source of comfort in our trials than your sovereignty. I pray that you would help us to evaluate our problems, our our tragedies, our tragic circumstances in the light of your word and trust that you are working in our lives in a way that is consistent with your holy character. We see that the characters of Scripture Grew in their understanding as they progressed through life and began to see your sovereign love and your sovereign power. We ask that we would be like the prophet Habakkuk, who at the end of his life said these words in song Though the fig tree should not blossom, And there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exalt in you, Lord, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Amen. Amen.